All right, Alexander, let's talk about what is happening in Ukraine and Avdivka. I think that is that is the big story. And uh, there are uh, Russian advances throughout the entire front line. Even the Institute for the Study of War has had to admit as much, um, erasing effectively the entire five months of the Ukraine uh, spring summer counteroffensive, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the Russians are now on the move and uh, and a lot of focus is on Avdevka, but um, there are a lot of other areas where the Russians are uh, are making progress. So what is the situation on the front lines? Well, I think you just summed it up. Uh, the Russians are advancing right across the front lines. They're doing so in mid-autumn, at the time, the worst period of the Rasputitsa, the mud season. So these are in difficult conditions for an army to be able to advance. And nonetheless, and despite that, they are advancing. And they seem to be advancing, in my opinion, very rapidly, you know, relatively speaking, near Avdevka. Avdevka, we were always told, was one of the most heavily fortified positions that Ukraine had created along the front lines. And what's happening, or, or so it seems to me, is that this position is now being steadily and incrementally encircled. And this is happening at a much faster speed than I think most people anticipated when this current offensive near Avdevka began um, at the start of October. So the Russians some weeks ago captured this thing called the waste heap. This is the slag heap near uh, the coke plant uh, near to Avdevka. That gave them an observation platform because it's high ground that they could use to monitor what was going on right across Avdevka. Um, they've now apparently been able to penetrate into the coke factory, which is located quite close to it. They haven't yet made a concerted effort to storm it, but they are pushing hard on the coke factory. Further south, which is the other side of the pincer that's moving, they are advancing um, apparently also pretty fast through an industrial zone that is located there. I saw a, rope, uh, a report yesterday which said that they now control the entire industrial zone, bar two buildings. So they've cleared that, again, very fast. And historically, industrial zones, places where there's factories and uh, industrial units, have tended to be amongst the most difficult to uh, capture by the Russians during the war. I mean, these can be converted into sort of natural pillboxes or fortresses, just mean a minor fortresses. So they can be easy to defend, but the Russians seem to have cleared, cleared this area very fast. And if we go a bit further west, where the Russians seem to be creating a sort of, a sort of wider, a broader encirclement. So we have the narrow encirclement around Avdevka itself, the advance to the Coke factory from the north and through the industrial zone to the south. We also have a push further north along a, the railway, a railway track. Uh, this village, there's been one particular village which is beyond the railway track called Stepovoye, which the Russians apparently have pushed the Ukrainians out of. 
There was a report last night, might be premature, that the Russians have now entered that village themselves and are in the process of taking it over. And beyond that, there's another village called Berdichi, which if the Russians capture, would apparently complicate Ukrainian um, supply routes into um, uh, Avdeka very considerably. But the other thing is, they're, 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 there's a, this railway track they're pushing up the railway track. They're clearing more and more of the railway track. There was an article about six days ago in El País, the Spanish newspaper, in which there was a Ukrainian soldier who was defending this area. And he actually explained to the Spanish journalist the importance of this railway track. He said this is a natural fortification. If we lose it, it will be a disaster. If we fully lose control of it, it would be a disaster. The Russians can send, send their armour beyond the railway track and the Battle of Avdevka is at that point effectively lost. Well, that is exactly what is happening. And that interview, all of seven days ago, between the Spanish journalist and the Ukrainian soldier took place in a village, uh, not along this railway track, and... The Russians are now approaching that particular village. So Avdevka, you're starting to see Ukrainian positions, or so it seems to me, start to crumble. And this happening, really, given how fortified, how heavily fortified this position is, it's happening fast. Now, there's also bad news for the Ukrainians pretty much everywhere else. Um, the the um, there was There's an area... Um, called the Vremevka salient, the Vremevka ledge, which is um, sort of hilly area uh, near a river valley. It was where the Ukrainians began their offensive on the 4th of June. Um, back in August, they claimed to have captured two important villages there, Staromayorsk and Urozhainy. The Russians appear to be in the process of retaking both. Again, it's a hard fight, but they are pushing back there. They've recaptured a whole string of other villages in the same area. And um, in Bakhmut, where there's been this endless battle that's been going on now for over a year, the Russians, you remember the Wagner organization, Prigozhin, captured um, Bakhmut in May. The uh, Ukrainians then counterattacked. They've been trying to retake at least the western part of Bakhmut. Well, the Russians are now pushing back. They've recovered all the ground that the Ukrainians, or are in the process of recovering all the ground that the Ukrainians spent uh, lost thousands of men since May trying to recapture. And it looks like they're poised now to advance beyond the positions that the Wagneritz organization had captured um, during the process of capturing Bakhmut itself. So the Russians are, as you absolutely rightly said, as the ISW also says, now advancing all across the front line. And they're doing so fast. And one gets the sense of Ukrainian defences crumbling in many places. I mean, they're still putting up a fight. They haven't given up. But there's more and more reports of more and more Ukrainian soldiers disobeying orders to attack, other Ukrainian soldiers handing themselves in. We hear more and more reports about um, Ukraine suffering a disastrous shortage of artillery. Um, 
the Spanish journalist uh, near Avdevka was told by a Ukrainian soldier there that whereas in the summer he was firing, his, his artillery unit was firing 150 shells a day, now they're down to just 15, and the uh, guns, the, the barrels of their guns are so worn out that the accuracy of their guns has just collapsed. And um, this seems to be a problem that they have right across the battlefronts, that they're short of men. There's talk about a new massive conscription drive. They're short of men. They're short of machines. They're trying to husband a few machines that they have left. They haven't committed the Bradleys, sorry, the, the, the Abrams tanks so far to any battle. They've pulled back the Challenger tanks. They're trying to hold them back. But overall, the situation looks pretty awful for Ukraine, and the trend of the Russian advance appears to be accelerating. So what happens to the Zelensky administration should, uh, should Avdivka uh, fall? I think it will be a major psychological blow because they've, they've um, talked up Avdivka as this great fortress. Um, they said the same about Bakhmut, of course, but perhaps they've said that even more about Avdivka. Avdivka is close to Donetsk city and it was supposed to be the gateway for the Ukrainians eventually to recapture Donetsk city. I mean, that seems far-fetched now, but before... Well, they've never admitted that Bak- that Bakhmut has, has been no, of course, taken by no, the that's, Russians. That's, that's also, <laughs> yeah. That is also true, actually. They've never admitted that. They've never admitted that Bakhmut is lost, but of course we all know that it has been. But Avdevka, if anything, is symbolically even more important because it's close to Donetsk city. And again, we've had all of these reports, which I'm sure are going to be denied in a few weeks' time, just as they were with Bakhmut. That, uh, but we've had lots of reports about the strategic importance of Avdevka. They've appeared in the Western media, that it sits on top of the dense system of communications, that the Ukrainians can't send troops to various places without passing them through Avdevka. And the loss of Avdevka will open the way for Rus- further Russian advances in the future. I remember reading exactly all that about Bakhmut. And then, of course, Bakhmut fell, and we, then we were told that Bakhmut is of no strategic importance. I'm sure they will say the same about Avdevka. But the fact is, and we shouldn't forget this, they have said it. I mean, I've read military people, Western military people, saying that the loss of Avdevka will be not just a major psychological blow, but a major military blow as well. And by the way, I mean, I've just summed up places where the major advances are happening. It looks like the Russians are also pushing in all kinds of other places too. There's still a lot of fighting going on in the north, in Kupiansk, near Kupiansk, and other places as well. So um, a a Russian advance all along the front lines um, and a darkening of the mood, both in Ukraine itself and amongst Ukraine's Western backers. Yeah, it is a Russian advance, but it doesn't seem like this is the big advance that many analysts are talking about or are expecting. It still seems like the Russians are focused on uh, demilitarizing uh, Ukraine, annihilating the, the Ukraine military and just keeping the pressure on, on the Ukraine military uh, and creating types of, of cauldrons with openings where, where they understand 
that Zelensky will continue to to push Ukraine uh, military into those cauldrons to be annihilated. So it seems like the Russian strategy is is working out very well. Uh, what, uh, if you want to comment on that, and and a question about uh, U.S. Uh, funding for Ukraine. Uh, we don't know if if they're going to manage to get if the Biden White House is going to get sixty billion to Ukraine or not. They're trying to bundle it with with the Israeli aid and, and the border and um, and Taiwan and that big uh, funding package. It's going to come up for a vote soon, and eventually they're going to get some money to Ukraine. I don't know how much. Maybe it'll be all sixty billion. Maybe it won't be. But uh, do you think that this money makes will make any difference at, at all? As no, far it won't as make keeping Ukraine afloat. Well, it will make a difference in the sense that without the money, I mean, Ukraine will be in an absolutely impossible and unsustainable situation, and it will, you know, the, the war will end much more quickly if the United States stops providing the money. But the important thing to understand is that even if the United States provides all the money that Biden has asked for, sixty-one billion dollars, which at the moment seems unlikely, but it's not. A possibility we should discount. There's probably still a majority in Congress that wants aid for Ukraine. But even if they do, it's more money thrown on top of lots of money that has already been given to Ukraine and hasn't achieved the purpose it was intended to. Ukraine has been provided with money, funding by the United States at a higher and faster rate than any other US ally since the Second World War, involved in a war. Faster, more money than South Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. There's been attempts to convert that money, as we saw last year, this year, into a Ukrainian offensive that would defeat the Russians. It hasn't worked. The US is now very short of artillery shells and attempts to crank up reduction of artillery shells has not been successful. They're not successful so far in in increasing production of missiles and other things. We've discussed this many, many times. You can't just wave your hand and more of this will come. It doesn't work like that. Uh, The Europeans have tried to do the same thing. All that they've managed to do is increase the cost of shells from about 800 euros a shell to something like 8,000 euros a shell because they're simply throwing money at the problem. So money will prevent an immediate rapid collapse if it's provided a faster collapse, but it won't change the overall trajectory of the conflict. And more and more people in the United States are starting to say this. So we have the magical... Uh, a thinking article in the Wall Street Journal that we talked about in a recent program. We've now had another long piece in Foreign Affairs by Richard Haas, the man from the Council for Foreign Relations, the person who was behind all that outreach to the Russians, that you know semi-diplomatic outreach to the Russians. Um, they met with they met with Lavrov at the UN back in. Um, the spring, they've sent their people to Moscow, they're looking for a freeze. There's been a lot of that going on. And, um, you know, people in the United States are beginning to see it. There's there's that view, which says, let's 
try and conserve forces, go on to the defensive, negotiate with the Russians, try to find some face-saving way of getting out of this problem, maybe freeze the war if we can. That's the sort of one prevailing view. And then there's the other increasingly desperate view that you're starting to get from some Ukrainians and some Western supporters, some neocon supporters of the Ukraine project. Mobilize everyone. Throw every single person that you still have in Ukraine who can carry a gun, boys, uh, young men, students, girls, throw them into the battlefield. The West give everything that it's got left. Not quite clear what they mean by that, but anyway, whatever they think they can, and try and reverse things that way. Now, the, the, the first, I mean, both of these are delusional thinking, in my opinion. The first is delusional because there's no reason why the Russians would agree to a freeze now and they're not going to and they've ruled that out. The second isn't just delusional, it's it's more of the magical thinking that that Wall Street Journal article was talking about. The idea that if you could, you know, press in, throw in a million men, uh, poorly trained, um, in many cases young, in many cases women, that that will somehow turn things around. I mean, that that is just I mean, it's not just magical thinking, it's appalling thinking. But those seem to be the two approaches at the moment. And neither of them is a coherent, realistic approach to this coming debacle, which we need to be very clear about, is now looming clearly over the horizon. Yeah, Uh I get the sense that the Biden White House is uh, is contemplating how to how to get out of of this catastrophe while minimizing the damage to an already battered Biden reelection uh, campaign. If and, and I am starting to believe that Biden will be running as the Democrat choice for a 2024. I, I don't know. Time's running out, and and I just don't see Biden stepping aside. I mean, we're we're almost into December. So, you know, it, it looks like Biden's going to be the guy. And uh, I, I just get the sense that 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 Sullivan and, and Blinken and the DNC and all these people are just are just trying to figure out, can we get Ukraine over the 2024 mark? Can we keep them up and running until 2024? Or do we need to cut this loose right away? I mean, they're kind of like stuck in that in that quagmire, they're trying to figure out how how should we go about this. But I, I, I'm getting the sense that they want off of this this this, this Ukraine train that they uh, this, this disaster, this crash that they created. I, I, I entirely agree, except that they have a number of problems. Firstly, the, the, the most obvious one is the president himself. Now, an article has appeared in the Washington Post, which. Um, is attributed to him and which I'm sure reflects his views. I mean, like most of these articles, one wonders how much of it he did himself right, but you know, we're not going to go into that. The point is, if you read it, I mean, he's still there talking the old uh, tunes, you know, uh, uh, the US is the except, is the essential country where we have a duty to lead. Um, um, we must resist the Russians over there because if we don't, 
we might have to fight them over here. I mean, you know, that's practically what he said. American soldiers would have to be facing the Russians if Ukraine goes down. It didn't seem to me as if uh, Biden is showing any real sign of flexibility on the Ukraine issue. I don't think intellectually he can. I mean by that, that, you know, he said a few weeks ago, that, you know, of course, we're the United States. We can support wars in the, in the Middle East and in Ukraine. We can do so indefinitely. You know, hey, we're the United States. We can do anything. We can walk on water. We can fly in the air. We can, we, we have, there's, there's no limit to what we can do. And that, it seems to me, remains his you know, essential beliefs. So you you can't find, if you can't persuade him to step down, and I agree, by the way, I think it's too late now. I think whether they like it or not, they're stuck with him. I mean, they could, they should have followed your advice back in the early summer and acted then, but they didn't. They left it too late. They did it. They couldn't decide on who else should step in. And the result is that they've now stuck with him. And he isn't looking for a way out, or so it seems to me. He he doesn't, I don't know to what extent he understands the briefings that he's been given or what kind of briefings he's getting. But, I mean, he seems to be, you know, stuck with that military thing. And, of course, the other problem they have is the problem that William Burns, the CIA director, is now confronting when he goes to Kiev, uh, uh, and I'm sure it's also the problem that was conveyed to them by Yermak, Zelensky's um, assistant, when he came to Washington, which is that the Ukrainians, they, what they want, they don't want the United States, these, you know, realist people, the Richard Hasses and all these people, they don't want the United States to negotiate with the Russians. They want the Ukrainians to do it for them. But it's increasingly looking as if the Ukrainians are incapable of doing it. Um, the government system in Ukraine is apparently now dysfunctional. The row between uh, Zelensky and Zeluzhny is unresolved, um, but it seems that the two men are not talking to each other. Apparently, Zelensky is now bypassing Zeluzhny and is giving direct orders to Ukrainian military commanders without passing them through Zeluzhny. At least that's the rumour. Zeluzhny, according to some claims, is busy organising a coup, which I don't believe. But anyway, that's the story. So it's a fragile political system now in Kiev, and no one within it really is capable of beginning a serious discussion with the Russians. Um, how can they? I mean, no, there isn't support for it. And anyone who tries to do it is almost guaranteed for themselves defeat in what is, as far as I can see, a behind-the-scenes power struggle that is now out of control. What a mess. What a mess they have created. For yes, themselves, I mean for Ukraine, and for Europe, which is the big loser in all of this. I mean, well, Europe's indeed. going to be the big, big loser in all of this. Well, indeed so. Aside from Ukraine, obviously, if, if Ukraine even exists. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, it, well, it, well but, indeed yeah. so. Uh, and but by the way, look, note, notice something else that's happening. Because I mean, the only country now in Europe that still seems to be sending military aid to any degree to Ukraine is Germany. Uh, uh, the Poles have basically, that's dwindled. I mean, I gather, I gather that the Poles and the Czechs still refurbish tanks. 
uh, old Soviet-era tanks for Ukraine. Um, Poland was supposed to refurbish uh, Ukraine's Leopard 2 tanks that got damaged on the battlefield. Apparently, they've only managed to refurbish one and send it back. Just one. <laughs> Britain, which is the most outspoken supporter of Ukraine amongst the big Western uh, European countries. I mean, uh, it's a very long time since I saw any arms package from Britain to Ukraine. You know, the storm shadows have gone. The challenges have gone. Our self-propelled howitzers have gone. France seems to me to be much the same. Italy also. So, um, you know, they are in a mess. But also, they can't change course. I mean, who does David Cameron, our new foreign minister, British foreign minister, who's the first person he goes to see? He still goes to Kiev. He still goes to meet Zelensky. He still utters the famous words as long as it takes, even if the actual reality is that support for Ukraine is just dwindling away. And again, I get the sense that there's no real plan on, on the part of anybody about what to do. There's just some hope that somehow this whole thing will be wished away. More of the magical thinking, if you like. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of the politicians are just kind of taking the approach in, in Europe. They're taking the approach of uh, of the United States as well, which is, you know, let's just try to keep this thing alive until uh, we get to some sort of election. And, yes. you know, then we'll see. You know, and there are going to be a lot of elections in 2024 yes. uh, all yes. over, all over yes. Europe, uh, yes. as well as the United States. So I think they're also just taking that attitude of let's just keep this thing going and whatever happens in in my country where I'm prime minister or president, we'll we'll, we'll just try to keep Ukraine uh, afloat until I, I have my my local elections. I mean. I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly correct. So there's elections in, in in all sorts of European countries. Of course, there's also the big elections in the United States. People are becoming increasingly nervous about these elections, but keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> Hope that the war doesn't uh, uh, end in a Ukrainian collapse before the election happens. And at the same time, and this is very noticeable in Britain now, get Ukraine off the front pages. I mean, you can see this very clearly. I mean, uh, uh, if you look at the British media, for example, Ukraine is featured far less than it has it was even a few weeks ago. Yeah, that that's that's a good strategy in a way, you know, just kind of get people to forget about it. It, it works. It, it does work. But but once you get that, just a final note. Once you get that big collapse though it is going to make a big impact the yes, question is. is is will that will that affect for example the biden campaign or whatever other campaigns are are going on in europe well indeed absolutely and that is the thing to understand i mean there will be a collapse at some point this is now i think increasingly becoming the trajectory and going back to a point that you made before this what we're seeing at the moment is a russian advance all across the front lines it is not the big russian offensive uh, uh, the troops that are participating in this offensive seem to be the same Russian troops who repelled Ukraine's offensive. We were talking a lot about Avdeevka. The fighting in Avdeevka is being conducted on the Russian side by Russian brigades that were created out of the Donbass militia. Now, they are obviously been extensively retrained and re-equipped. 
They have now, no doubt, professional officers drawn from the Russian army. They are far more uh, capable units than they were, say, a year ago. But they are still not, you know, the big Russian forces that are building up. And, you know, we get more and more reports, Russia producing huge numbers of tanks, drones, uh, guns, shells, all of these kind of things. But we've not yet seen any of that actually in the battle. And one does wonder what will happen when we do. They've got a huge force that they've built up. I think 420,000 or 450,000 yeah. troops. Uh, yeah. New troops. New soldiers. New professional, troops. professional. Professional. Soldiers by the end of the year. Professional new troops who are getting, you know, proper training. Apparently the training period for these troops is around a year. So, I mean, you know, and, you know, some of them, a lot of significant, I mean, most of them, many of them now have completed that training course. But this isn't going to be like what Ukraine is being asked to do, you know, uh, um, round up every student, every 17-year-old boy, every girl, throw them into the army and give them a few weeks training and then throw them into the battlefronts. I mean, th this isn't the same thing at all. This is a build-up, as you absolutely rightly say, of a highly trained, very big, very powerful, very well-equipped professional force. And, you know, we've not all yet right. seen it in action. We've not yet seen it in action, yeah. All right, we will end it there. The Durand.locals.com. We are on Odyssey, BitChute, Rumble, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Durand shop, 20% off. Use the code the Durand20. Take care.